Well, thank you, Joe, for leading us in worship, and I trust this is a good Lord's Day for you. Uh, we gather together by virtual means to be able to lift our worship to Him because of all that He does in sustaining us from week to week, all He provides for us, all that He sets before us for the week to come. And I trust that you found yourself in a place and a spirit of worship here this morning. Because even though we're not gathered yet on a Sunday morning, we are gathered in spirit throughout many homes across this valley and literally maybe across the nation. And so we're grateful that uh, you have chosen to come and isolate time to worship with the Lord. Are you ready to go? Uh, we're, uh, we're in the locker room, right? We're ready to go. We're going to come out of the locker room. We're going to be running through the tunnel. It's time to get on the field. It's time to play the game. I find so many Christians that uh, they are mere spectators, and uh, they just like to watch, but they really hesitate to get down on the field and play the game, the kingdom's game of life, and serve God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and passion. And so we are in a series uh, that has been calling us and challenging us, as Joe said, to be able to up our game. And I want us to up our game by uh, means of putting some uncommon practices into place so that we can have a greater life impact. A greater life impact ultimately for God, but an impact for others and an impact even in our own life. But we will never play the game well. We will never perform well. We will never make it happen. We will not get the win unless we take the time to go into training behind the scenes so that when it's game time or when the curtain goes up on the performance, we're able to make it happen. Now, I know there's a lot of different things that come into play as to if a game goes well or not. But one of the things that we can focus on is our own training not just calisthenics, but the practices, the routines, the regimentation that we put into place so that we can develop our life, skill set-wise, but also the interior part of our life. Because each of us, we're out there every week interacting, making things happen, being responsible on the home front, being responsible uh, on the work front. Maybe you're in school and kids were back this week, as mentioned, and, and uh, you're trying to perform well there. We are busy people with a lot of activity trying to make things happen. And one of the reasons I believe that you tune in maybe on a Sunday morning like this or you gather for worship is not only to worship and synthesize your heart to God, but you're wanting some practical nuggets. You're wanting something that you can do that's going to help you with your life. Well, each and every week, I try to remember that, and I try to think in terms of my own life and what uh, would be helpful to me. But this series that we're in relating to upping our game and focusing on some uncommon practices or what's uh, traditionally been called spiritual disciplines, uh, the word discipline is just sort of a hard word for me because it's like, well, that doesn't sound any fun, right? Um, but the idea of focusing on uncommon practices and spiritual disciplines is not necessarily a popular topic. In fact, this week I was uh, reading about someone who had started a church a number of years ago, started it from scratch. It grew to be one of the strongest churches in North America and also had an influence around the world. And their lead pastor, who's now retired or resigned from that place, was being asked questions related to looking back on the journey of his church, the church growth, what happened with the people. And they had done a study in their later years when he had been there uh, that sort of took the pulse, the pulse of the Christians that had been around that church been sitting underneath a, a lot of Sunday morning teaching, been interacting a lot with small groups and, and doing ministry and serving, how spiritually mature they were and vibrant and what kind of depth that they had. And the survey or the analysis did not go well. In fact, things were revealed in that that were very troubling. Um, and, you know, it's, it's the... True fact that you can go and you can sit in church your whole life and not grow spiritually. You can sit in church your whole life and never come to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And as he was reminiscing and looking back on his church run and all the tremendous success he uh, had had with that church, he said this. 
is that I went back and looked at something that we missed in the early days of our church. And it's still a mystery to me why it was so much of a miss. It may be due to the fact that I still was a fairly recent Christian when we started the church in my younger years. In fact, I'd only been a Christian five years. So when I started it, I loved reading God's Word, and I loved communicating with Him in prayer and reading good Christian books. I liked that just because of my relationship with God that was fresh and wanting to grow. But I dramatically underestimated how often my colleagues and the people in the church practiced the classic spiritual disciplines. I just thought everybody spent time with God and surrendered their spirits before Him every day. That everybody worked hard to receive promptings from God, quieting the ambient noise in their life so they could hear Him. I misjudged that. And the few times that I did preach on it, I remember seeing the semi-confused faces of the people in the crowd and thinking, I must be doing a terrible job of teaching this because they are not getting it or they're not interested. I'm not getting the same kind of feedback that I get when I teach on other subject matters. So I wound up not teaching on the spiritual practices very often. It's hard to do, and I got mixed responses. Decades later, I found out, primarily through this study, uh, what was revealed, that I should have stuck with that. I should not have been dissuaded by the feedback I was getting. I should have done a major series on the classic spiritual disciplines every single year, whether I saw confused faces or not. I should have just dug in and made that a regular part of the menu. We get feedback like this. Yeah, well, interesting, but I'd, I'd really like to know something more practical than that. Like, how do I become a better parent? Why don't you teach this stuff at a seminar, not on a Sunday morning? Well, maybe it's good that I can't see your faces directly through virtual meets today because you might tune out or you're confused or maybe not getting good feedback here. But I tell you what, it's very important for us to focus on the uncommon practices that can enable us to live life better, more fully, more richly before the Lord and before others. And it really is up to you. I've seen people pop from one church to another, and sometimes some of the saying is, well, I just don't feel that I'm being fed. And sometimes I have this vision of, what, what do you mean being fed? I, I, I want to be able to, as a pastor, as a preacher, to be able to be in God's Word and impart God's Word. But is it really our responsibility that you are fed? It's almost like uh, the picture of a little kid being put in a high chair, and it's like, well, there you go, I'm not going to feed you. Friends, you have to learn to feed yourself. You have to learn to grow spiritually yourself. You are the one responsible for the spiritual dimensions in your life. And if you set it aside and you're so calculated with other things of priority, you will not grow spiritually. But if you're interested in growing spiritually, if you're interested in upping your game, if you're interested in getting out there on the playing field and doing that which God has called you to do, then I want to be of support and encouragement to you. And so we've been starting to go now through some of these practices or these spiritual disciplines. A couple of weeks ago, we started with authoritative prayer. And I was with someone this week and interacting with them. And they were telling about how that authoritative prayer has taken hold in a couple opportunities in their life. And lo and behold, that, that God was working through that prayer and answering that prayer. The whole aspect of last week, we talked about uh, being able to vocalize God's word or hear the God's word in your head. And that one of the important things is to memorize scripture. And I've seen different ones of you take that initiative even this week to say, I'm going to memorize scripture and try to figure out a, a way that works for me and hide God's word in my heart that I might not sin against God. And so you're taking that initiative. I'm very grateful for that. Today, we're going to look at a discipline that... Uh, could at first cause you to tune out and go, oh, I, I don't know about that. That doesn't sound it's not like something that would really work for me. And um, it may not, but it's a spiritual discipline that has been historically used by any great person of the faith all the way back into the Old Testament and definitely with the life of Jesus that we're going to look at. But I want to start with uh, 
juxtaposing two verses, two passages of the Scripture. And the first is this that's found in 1 Corinthians 15, 58 by the Apostle Paul. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And so the key word that I want to pull from this passage here is the word abounding, abounding in the work of the Lord. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, especially in my life and whether probably not if I went into vocational ministry or not, I wanted to abound and do really well in being able to serve God's purposes. He started to give me that hunger and I wanted to reach out. I wanted to make things happen. I wanted to excel for him. If I'm out there on the field, I want to be able to, to serve him well and play my part well, whatever God's called me to do. And the Apostle Paul was driven that way as well. And he's exhorting the brothers and sisters in the faith here to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding, abounding, getting at it, making it happen. And if uh, you're one of those driven people, then maybe it sort of comes naturally to you. If you're wired some other kinds of ways, maybe it's a little bit more of a challenge. But he's saying you need to abound in the work of the Lord so your toil or your labor is not in vain in the Lord. There's these end statements that are working here and of the Lord that cause us to go to a second passage that uh, we used last week, what were words of Jesus, and uh, we quoted it from John 15. And it's this, Abide in me, Jesus said, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You want to bear a lot of fruit? You want to abound richly? Well, there's a tie between abounding and this other word, which is the word abiding. Abounding in the work of the Lord is directly in connection with abiding in the presence of the Lord. But here's our problem. A lot of times when we're abounding in the work of the Lord, it pulls us away from abiding in the presence of the Lord. And sometimes we get so caught up and maybe enriched and just want to abide in the presence of the Lord that we don't push ourselves out or be led by the Spirit to go out to abound in the work of the Lord. And so there's this tension between abounding and abiding, abounding and abiding. How long will this tension in your life take place? Until the day you die. You are in a world of opportunity, a world of fullness, a world of privilege, a world of busyness, and you are seeking to abound at your responsibilities or abound in the work of the Lord each and every week. But there's tension amidst all the busyness and activity of life that keeps us from being able to do the abiding that we need to have. Jesus was very clear, was he not? If you do not abide in me, you will produce no good fruit. You have to abide in Christ. And he was referencing this uh, grafting of a branch into the vine, right? That our substance is coming from him. You see, when you run out on the field, when the curtain's raised, when it's time, you need to be in a disposition that is full of God. I often say the only thing we really have to give is out of the overflow of our own life. But sometimes we're running on fumes. If you were to look on your spiritual dashboard, you know, the, the gauge for physical is ebbing low. And the gauge for some spiritual stuff is ebbing towards empty. And then the gauge for your emotional well-being is sort of running dry. And you're just sort of running on fumes. And, and now you've got to up the ante. You've got to be on it. You know, you would think with the whole COVID journey that we've had this nice uh, setback time and we're ready to go. Let's open up the businesses. Let's open up houses of worship. Let's get at this. Maybe get the kids back into a physical school building. But friends, 2020 has not been an easy year all the way through. And there is a lot of emotional drain that's happened in our life. 
And so one of the challenges we have when, hey, it's on the fall, let's get at it. Or if, you know, we'll be able to open back up the church and get back into it, let's get at it. Is that interior wise, in the interior part of our life, we're running on empty. We're not full. And if you and I are called to up our game and be at it, then we've got to focus on that interior part. And that interior part is relating to the abiding part. And as you abide in the presence of the Lord, then you will abound more richly in the work of the Lord. And as you abound richly in the work of the Lord, it's going to cause you to crash back on abiding in the presence of the Lord. These two will be in tension, but it's a good, healthy tension. You'll have it your whole life. Jesus had it. In fact, I'd like you to just catch a glimpse or think about His life. He, he became human flesh. He, he took on human likeness, but He took on the very essence of what it means to be human. And we find Him starting His ministry, and we looked at it last week when we referenced His 40 days in the wilderness and the temptations he had against Satan and how he used the Word of God to combat Satan. That Word hidden in his heart, his mind, to be able to do battle. But the 40 days in the wilderness was not just fighting the devil off. It was 40 days of preparation for him before he started his public ministry. It was about at the age of 30. Now, he had three years of ministry before he was crucified. He died, rose from the grave, ascended to the heavens, and sent his spirit back on. And now we're living in light of all that history and are soon waiting his soon return. But he really had three years of intense public ministry. And before he stepped into those three intense years, God the Father had him step back to spend a time abiding more fully in his presence. And it teaches us this in the Scriptures. Let me just have us turn to Mark. And we're going to look at this abiding and abounding back and forth that happened in Jesus' life and see it as a model or encouragement for what we need to be doing in our own life. All right? And what we're going to find in this back and forth between the abounding and the biting is we're going to find the uncommon practice I want us to focus on today. And that is the uncommon practice of silent solitude. Silent solitude. Jesus practiced this often. And if He had not practiced this often, this abiding aspect, then the abounding in the work that he did here on earth would not have been nearly as rich. In Mark 1, at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals, and angels attended him. So he's out in the wilderness of Israel, He's got the Father, whom he came from, and he's in relationship with him, God the Father. He's got his scriptures. He's got angels attending him. And he's got wild animals around him. And then we also know that he ended up combating Satan when Satan tempted him. But these 40 days were days of preparation for his interior life, his soul to be able to abound in the work. And so then right after that, it says, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. So we have the abiding, the 40 days. Then we have the abounding, proclaiming the good news of God. And if you go just a few verses later, in verse 35 of Mark 1, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. He went back to the abiding. He went back to the abiding, and it, and it speaks of him doing this quite often, actually, in his life, where he would withdraw from the people. He would go to a place of abiding. He would attune himself uh, more fully and richly uh, to the Father's voice. 
But I find it interesting, right after this verse about what he's doing, he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Verse 36 says this, Simon, Simon Peter and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Oh my gosh, everybody is looking for you. Where have you been? You don't have your cell phone on you. There's things that are going to need to be addressed. Would you get up and get out of there and pay attention to the important things? What are you doing over here? We didn't know where you were. I embellished. But Jesus had the tension. He had the tension. So what do, you, what do you think he did when he was, hey, I'm in my protective, solitary place? You know, it's like, hey, I'm, I'm abiding, Peter. Just, just bug off, man. Leave me alone. I'm, I'm just in touch with God here. I've got my special moment. What, what do you mean? Just tell people to wait. Is that what he did? No, it's not what he did. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons, it says. Through to verse 39. He went from abiding back to abounding. He had this back and forth tension, but it was a rhythm. And that's what I want to present to you today as it relates to the common practice. Is that you and I in our life, we need to establish a rhythm of abiding and abounding so that our interior life can match the opportunities of the exterior life. And you and I have to give attention to the interior life or we're going to fall on our face when we run through the tunnel. I found it so true in my life many a times. I needed to be full in the moment, but I had not been leading my life in such a way that I had anything rightfully to give. Now, it's interesting, if you continue on in Mark, in Mark chapter 6, 31, you find Jesus teaching this rhythm to his disciples. Chapter 6, verse 31, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. And so he, he, he began to teach them. Now, this uh, takes place after they had been out doing ministry and interacting. So he's got these disciples in training, right? And uh, they are abounding in the work. They've come back and they said, hey, here's the report. This is what's going on. And there were so many people around, they couldn't even eat. Now, this is setting the stage for the feeding of the 5,000. So what does Jesus do talking to his disciples in training that needs to happen next? He says, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. The rhythm. Abounding, abiding, abounding, abiding. The uncommon practice of silent solitude is going to enable you to stay more connected, abiding in the vine, as Jesus Christ instructed us, so that we could produce good fruit. But if we do not abide in the vine, we will wither up and die. And they gather those branches, cast them into the fire, and they are burned. But if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. And Jesus understood this because he was human. You see, Jesus, he cried, he hurt, he had pain, he grew weary. It's hard for us to comprehend how God himself could become a flesh. Uh, the word is kenosis. He poured himself out and took on human likeness. So Jesus had to learn how to live this life here on earth in a way that kept him connected with God. A lot of times they go, well, he's Jesus, man. He had a direct pipeline and all these other kinds of things. I'm not Jesus. Well, friends, you're not Jesus. That's true. I'm not Jesus. But you and I have been given the same body, the physical human body and mind that Jesus was given. And so here he was learning 
this aspect of abiding, as he abided in the Father and kept his commandments and loving other people, and he was teaching his disciples about the abiding so that they could abound. And when you abound, you need to come back to abide because the interior life has to continually be developed in order for you to be uh, competent in living life well with the exterior life. Some of you right now, you're spent, you're weary, you're confused, you're struggling. Jesus understands. Jesus understands and he would speak to you this morning a good and faithful word about doing the balancing act. Sometimes it's a tension, yes, but it's a beautiful blend. And only you can reorder your life in order to be able to have that sustainable kind of existence, and not just a sustainable existence, but the developed ability to abound richly in the work of God. Whether that's in raising your children, being faithful at work, being faithful to uh, the instructors and the teaching that you're going through, if you're in education, whether it's being faithful to your neighbor and serving others, the homeless, the poor, to be able to reach out to those who don't know God, that just need a word of encouragement, for you to abound richly in all that's set before you and I each and every week. We have to have an understanding of what it means to be human. And when we get to a place of burnout, if you will, most likely it's because some of the interior stuff in our life has not stayed healthy. So that's my encouragement to you. The reason that you would practice silent solitude is for the purpose of keeping these two in a healthy tension and balance in your life. Some of you are familiar with uh, the Romans verse, do not conform or be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. And it goes on to say to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and improve God's uh, perfect will, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. This whole understanding of uh, being transformed, though, has to take rightful knowledge, ownership, a reality check, whatever you want to call it, that we are being conformed to the pattern of this world just by the life that we live. And what is the world? I like how Dallas Willard put it. He says the world is just the way most folks think. The world is just the way most folks think. You and I are being pressed into a certain mold each and every day. There are expectations around us. There are people that are beckoning for your time. You yourself are wanting to conform maybe to their expectations or meet someone else's standard or impress somebody else. You live in a crucible that's causing pressure to come on your life, and I do as well. And in the midst of that pressure cooker, that crucible, I have to resist being conformed to the way the world thinks. And if I do not take initiative to press back against that pressure, I will be conformed by the world. I think it's always interesting that uh, uh, an atheist or someone who's an agnostic says, you know, that I, I don't have any religion or I don't believe in God or whatever it may be. And so just don't practice that. Just live your life. And I'm like, well, everybody has a religion. Everybody is in some type of crucible. Everybody is being pressured to become something. And if you don't believe in God, that is a belief that you don't believe in God. So you can't like just empty your brain and not have any beliefs. You can't set yourself aside in life and not be taking on the pressures of the world. Jesus said you're of his disciples, they are in the world, but not of it. The call isn't for us to escape out of the world to become some monk or monastic person that just hibernates and doing the abiding without doing the abounding in the midst of the, the everyday routines and the opportunities that we have. We are in the world, we are not of it, but we need to resist being conformed by the world and the standards of the world or the supposed successes of what it means to look good in this world and be transformed. And how are we transformed? Well, we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. We're being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And we talked about it last week with Scripture and truth and being able to paint the interior walls of our life or wallpaper the interior parts of our life. Who are you listening to? All that's critical. And you have to be based upon truth. But I think with this spiritual discipline of 
of uh, silent solitude, it's putting a stop and saying, I need to step back and give focus to the interior part of my life. Dallas Willard is probably one of the more formative people in this whole subject of what's sometimes referred to as spiritual formation. Uh, he died a few years ago, but his impact was tremendous. He uh, raised up and nurtured a, a lot of people. He taught here uh, uh, in Southern California, but he had a broad influence, and his influence addressed this need for us to be people of depth that we wouldn't be running around as haggard people, but that we'd walk in the fullness and the richness and the presence of Christ. And, and so spiritual formations were, uh, it was a prominent uh, understanding of him, which refers to being formed into the image of Christ and discipleship and all that's a part of that. So I, I want to just share some of his words because they're profound, solid words as it relates to this Spiritual discipline of solitude. What is solitude? Solitude is choosing to step free from human relationships for a lengthy period of time in isolation or anonymity to make room for occupation of our lives by God. It is to do nothing and not try to make anything happen. I want to stop right there on his words there, because this is really important. Some of these uncommon disciplines are practices that we want to encourage one another with. Some are disciplines of engagement, and some are disciplines of abstinence. And solitude is one of those of abstinence. Um, solitude, silence, fasting, uh, Sabbath rest, those, those are practices of abstinence. It's not like you're doing something, like, oh, memorizing Scripture, right? Or taking the initiative with authoritative prayer or some other disciplines. So it's hard for us when it comes to defining solitude because we want to say, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do for solitude? Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Don't try to make anything happen. Well, that's how I'm wired. Got to make things happen. Got to pay the bills. Got to climb the hill. Got to, you know, launch that business. Got to make the next thing uh, develop. What are we saying? Pause. You do not have to do anything in solitude. It is a discipline of abstinence where you're pulling back is what he's saying. You're cutting yourself free from relationships, other things, the scaffolding that's around your life. He goes on and he says this. Solitude, well-practiced, will break the power of busyness, haste, isolation, and loneliness. You will see that the world is not on your shoulders after all. You will find yourself, and God uh, will find you in new ways. Joy and peace will begin to bubble up within you and arrive uh, from things and events around you. Praise and prayer will come to you and from within you. The sole anchor established in solitude will remain solid when you return to your ordinary life with others. And then he juxtaposes it and adds silence. Silence means quietness. Freedom from sounds except natural ones like breathing, bird songs, and the wind, and water moving. It also means not talking. Silence completes solitude. For without it, you cannot be alone. You remain subject to the pulls and the pushes of a world that exhausts you and keep you in bondage, distracting you from God and from your own soul. Far from being a mere absence, silence allows the reality of God to stand in the midst of your life. It is like the wind of eternity blowing in your face. Not for nothing does the psalmist say, be still and know that I am God. God does not ordinarily compete for our attention. In silence, we come to attend. When we stop talking, we abandon ourselves to reality and to God. 
We position ourselves to attend rather than to adjust things with our words. We stop our shaping and negotiating or spinning. How much of our energy goes into that? We let things stand. We trust God with what others shall think. This whole idea that we spend a lot of our time shaping and negotiating or spinning, and make, we are in the midst of a lot of activity that requires great emotional, spiritual, and sometimes physical being. And so is it no wonder that we are weary and tired trying to make it all happen? But in the midst of this, we live a mere existence going from one day to the next, one week to the next. Oh my gosh, how did we? It's almost September. How did it get to be September, right? And we're not in touch. We're not dialed in with our very existence before God itself. And so solitude is the stepping back from all the activity, doing nothing. I mean, you take some solitude. Uh, you, you may have some activity you might think you want to do, like, you know, you take your Bible or you uh, end up uh, taking a journal to write down some thoughts. All that's fine. But your prominent disposition when you take time for solitude is to do nothing, to stop. Now, for some of us, that's not too difficult. Maybe if we're more introverted. For some of us, we're more extroverted, and we would say, well, solitude would be all right if I could bring along some friends, Right? But solitude is you and God. Now, sometimes that's scary if you take time to do that. You see, Jesus, when he had solitude for 40 days, there was also the temptations of Satan and there were wild animals. So if you slow down, pause long enough to be with your own thoughts, uh, or hopefully maybe the thoughts of God, some things are going to be revealed about the interior part of your life that are sort of ugly, that you really are sort of discontent, that you really are trying to uh, uh, please other people because you have insecurities. You really do have fantasies of anger where you wish that people would, uh, you know, not maybe they wouldn't be hermed, hurt and harmed, but maybe they're uh, people that you wish that they knew how bad you hurt now because of what they did. And so you start to, fan you start to see all this, oh, why does this stuff come to me? There might be some wild animals in that, or the adversary who tries to discourage you. But in that, you are going to find a beautiful place. A beautiful place, because God will minister to you. And that's why Jesus withdrew. Why He spent times abiding in solitude, silent solitude, hearing from the Lord. Oh, here comes Peter again. All right, let's go, man. Let's make it happen. But I want to encourage you that you and I have the ability to live a different kind of life than we're currently living. But it's going to take your initiative. Have you ever had a time of solitude? I'm not talking veg time. I'm not talking me time, man. I just was so busy today. The kids and work was just a bust, man. I just need to chill. I'm not talking about that. It's great. Have your personal time, your me time, you know, do some binge watching, you know, spend your time uh, surfing uh, social media, uh, you know, go out and do some yard projects. I'm saying quietness where you cease activity and you just listen. And it's scary sometimes. And I haven't always done it very well myself. In fact, uh, probably one of the more significant times of solitude for me was an extended period of time of solitude, which is called a, a sabbatical in one sense. And I remember uh, getting into that sabbatical and trying to slow down and do nothing because, uh, you know, I wanted to recharge, to abound in the work of the next season of ministry in my life. And I, I found myself uh, worrisome and fan a little bit fanatical about, I didn't need to do this. And I was anxious. I, I, I started to tune into my interior life and my interior life was spinning and running at a certain level. I couldn't slow down and be quiet before God. I remember in that particular season of my life, and I was so grateful to be gifted with a sabbatical of extended period of time away from the rigors of ministry, but it took me two or three weeks to get rid of what I referred to as the toxins of responsibility. And though if you craft a solitude time of an hour or a half day or a whole day that you're able to get away and have solitude with, you may not be able to get rid of some of those toxins of responsibility all that much. You can find yourselves quieting yourself to listen to God 
to nature around you to not be responding to any uh, immediate uh, needs or even thinking about what you need to do to make something happen. And you're going to find yourself with yourself, but you're also with God. And He can speak and encourage. And your goal isn't to walk out of solitude by accomplishing something. Well, you know, I went on a day, a half day of solitude, and wow, I got this great revelation. No, you may not get any revelation. You may just learn how to live in the presence of the Lord. As Willard said, it's not that uh, we need to uh, beckon uh, Him to our presence. We need to be found in His presence. And so I want to encourage you to find a couple, three hours somewhere this fall. I'll give you a lot of time to get it scheduled. You see, if you leave it up to yourself, uh, it's not going to get on your calendar. You're going to have to schedule it. If you've got kids, you're going to need to find, maybe you're, uh, if you're married, you're able to swap uh, parenting for a day, a half day. But schedule a half day or a whole day would be more beautiful of silent solitude. And see what God does in nurturing the interior of your life. Henry Nouwen's another great person that's written on spiritual formations, the interior life. He says this solitude is a place of transformation. When we find space and silence, we are transformed from people who need to show all that we have acquired and all the wonderful things we do into people who raise our open and empty hands to a loving God, recognizing that our life and all we have is a free gift from God. He will restore that which the locust has stolen or that which has been pressured to be conformed by the world, the mindset of the world. And, and He will transform you in some ways that are fresh and renewing. And it's not that you come back with a bunch of nuggets of truth. or I mean, you can read Scripture, you can do journaling, your thoughts, that's fine, whatever God may uh, encourage you to do. But the most important thing is to do nothing. And to not try to accomplish anything. It's to sit and to listen and to be aware. To be aware of what God is doing around you and what He is doing in you. I had a question. What's the difference between being busy and being hurried? Between being busy and being hurried. As long as you live in a physical world, especially in North America, you will be busy. We have busy lives. But busyness is uh, an outward, it's an outward condition. And so we can have a lot of things on our schedule. We can have a lot of activities. We can uh, uh, even have pressing needs that we know need to get accomplished. We are physical human beings. Jesus was busy. But I never find or picture Jesus as a hurried person. Because hurriedness is something different. John Orberg, who's written a lot on interior life issues as well, he says this, being hurried is an inner condition, a condition of the soul. It means to be so preoccupied with myself and my life that I am unable to be fully present with God, with myself, and with other people. I am unable to occupy this present moment. Uh, being busy means that you have a lot of activity. Being hurried means you're preoccupied. Being busy means you're... Uh, trying to accomplish certain things. Um, being hurried means that you're not living in a present moment. Busyness is an outward condition. Hurriedness is an inner condition. Busyness can be physically draining. Hurriedness can be... Um, Spiritually detrimental. Sometimes I am physically challenged to meet all the busyness of my week. But I have to check, is that 
busyness challenge, that external thing, causing me to live a hurried life internally that's spiritually damaging to me. So my life's not full when it needs to be, or I'm just not even, um, full maybe isn't the best word because you're thinking of oh, that you're well-rested and all those things. No, it's, it's like, it, it, am I aware of the presence of God in this moment? Because busyness points to my need for God, and hurriedness just means that I'm unavailable to God. <laughs> this week I was uh, driving uh, my, uh, two of my kids, and uh, my 16-year-old sitting in the back, and since she now drives, she uh, notices a lot more things about dad's driving. And, and I was late getting somewhere where I really wanted to be there on time. And as I was driving hurriedly, I think I was probably on Clinton Keith or something like that. She goes, Dad, you're, your driving scares me. I just texted Mom. I'm like, oh, great. And I turned to her and I said, and I knew as soon as I said it, I would end up being preaching to myself later. I said, thank you, but may I remind you as a young driver in the years that I've had, is what was in my head, I am twice as much aware of my surroundings and what's going on as you are. And she says, right. And if my older kids would have heard me say that, I'd go, yeah, Dad, you're getting old, and you're not quick to respond like you used to either. But as I went on driving, I was thinking about it last night, because I didn't have to be as speedy or busy in getting to where I went, and I got there in a decent time, and things were all fine. Um, why did I get myself in that state? And... It's all right to be busy, but I had gotten myself in a hurried state. And when I'm in a hurried state, I lose track of the present moment and what's going on around me or the presence of God in my present moment. And I become unavailable to God to abound in His work. Here I was telling my daughter, I'm twice as aware of my surroundings as you are when you're driving because you're young. Not because she's a bad driver, but I thought, you know, but I may be half aware of what you are right now as to what's important. And so I want to encourage us to distinguish between busyness and hurriedness and understand this, as Dallas Willard said, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must, must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Silent solitude is a practice that helps you and I do that. We are called to accomplish great things. Let's play the game well. Let's up the game. But in that, as a good performer, as a good athlete, whatever your analogy may be, you have to be prepared when it's time. And that time is all the time. And you're going to have to establish the healthy rhythm that goes back and forth between abounding and abiding. But I want you to switch them. Abiding in the presence of the Lord comes first so that you may abound in the work of the Lord and not grow weary in the labor of doing it. Abiding and abounding, it's a tension for all of our life. May you do well with it. But may you take the initiative by choosing to isolate time, whether it's an hour on a morning, whether it's a half day somewhere, maybe it's even a full day, or maybe even a sabbatical season of a few days, or ever so gifted even beyond that. I want us to abound well in the work of the Lord, but I'm concerned sometimes that we're just skimming it. You see, there's a lot of people I know that are doing a lot of stuff, even for Jesus. But underneath, if you were to look at their interior life, they're doing it for selfish ambition or to earn favor with people. And they have this thin veneer of spiritual language, but there's no substance or there's no depth. Richard Foster, who gave reference to these spiritual disciplines, was saying that the need of the hour is not more intelligent people or more gifted people, but more deep people.
And God's kingdom needs that. It's not about accumulating the prosperity. It's about the interior life and developing a life that's lived and served in the presence of God. May we rightly realign our life and may the spiritual practices, the disciplines, these uncommon practices be used to guide us that direction. It's not like I'm given these practices to check them off one every week because the list will grow. I remember the first book I read on the spiritual disciplines was Robert's, uh, Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Disciplines. And I'm like, great, I don't want to read this. I'm just feeling more guilty now. I don't do enough praying and enough Bible reading. And now I've got 10 other disciplines I'm supposed to do. Give me a break. Friends, all the disciplines, the practices are not for you earning accolades in themselves. They're for the purpose of you developing a life by which you can win and you can live to the fullest. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it to the fullest. It doesn't happen by just downloading like the matrix, downloading information in my mind. Okay, I now need to have information to be a helicopter pilot. There it is. Now I need to have information to be a peaceful person or a patient person. It doesn't happen that way. It comes from you cultivating a life in the presence of the Lord. So I conclude by saying this. Abiding in Christ through His indwelling Spirit must become the most dominant reality in my life. More real than my town, my home, my phone, my looks, or my life's challenges. Attending to His presence is the primary means by which I can fully experience daily life and faithfully abound in His good work. I was communicating with somebody just yesterday about their life that I know for a number of years. And they no longer have their wife in their life, in their season. And they said, I hope that you don't think that I'm weird or wacky, but I have a place set where my wife would sit at the table. Except I now no longer think of having the conversation with her. I converse with Jesus because he's at that place. That's not wacky. That's practicing the presence of God. And you can do it even in the midst of regular routines. But it has to become the abiding, the dominant reality in your life. Attending to His presence. The primary means by which you have the fullness of life and you can faithfully abound in His good work. God bless. Have a great week.